Pray with me one more time today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your grace and mercy today. Thank you for the means of grace that we have as a church, that we have afforded to us in the faith. We thank you for the means of grace of being able to participate in the Lord's Supper together and to remember the perfect life that was lived and the perfect death that was died on our behalf. And that because of that, Lord, we can stand here today, we can, uh, we can sit here today, we can listen to your word, we can preach your word, and we can stand in this grace, Lord, that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we ask you, Lord, to help us to give us ears to hear, to give us a mind to understand. Give me a mouth to speak, Lord, and give our church uh, strength and give us zeal to uh, perform uh, what you have uh, prepared for us, the good works that you have ordained so that we walk in them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us endurance, grant us perseverance, even as we study, Lord, about the eschaton, as we study more Uh, about the man of sin as we understand the already not yet dynamic of eschatology. We realize the principles of your kingdom, Lord, that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, cannot be shaken, Lord, by the powers of the evil one. It cannot be shaken by the powers, the principalities and powers that are at work even now in the world. And so, Lord, We thank you that you've given us this invincible and indomitable hope. Thank you for the hope that we have in your Son, Lord. Bless us now as we study your word, Father. We pray that you would help us, help your people, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just to uh, give you guys a couple um, more announcements before I begin here, I just um, I wanted to just kind of put a feeler out here for our church. I've been sort of... uh, uh, thinking about uh, starting a couple uh, new studies in our church uh, that would happen throughout the month, uh, in each month, and that is um, doing a monthly study on two subjects, so two different studies on two different Fridays of the month, something that you can be praying for us and praying towards, but um, just talking to the brethren about the potential of coming together to study uh, apologetics and evangelism. And so maybe if you have a desire to evangelize and you have a desire to get equipped uh, in terms of apologetics, that might be something that you may be interested in. Just uh, let me know what you think about that. Not all at once, but let me know uh, uh, what your thoughts are as far as that, if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, So far, we've gotten quite an interest. And then the other thing that I think just has to happen in our church is maybe a a study specifically on biblical theology. Um, Even today, after Sunday school, somebody told me, man, I wish you could have finished. I wish you could have just gone on with what we were talking about. So my thinking on this and talking to Pastor Lynn is that we need to do a we need to do a monthly study, uh, in-depth study, a uh, two or three or who knows how many hours study. Uh, no, I, well, we won't keep you that long, but uh, just a lengthy, in-depth study and, um, and where we come together and we study uh, biblical theology, whether we go through a book or not, but just when we come together and uh, we can sort of fellowship over these great themes 
And if I can get, you know, just a handful of y'all to come together for either apologetics and evangelism or for biblical theology, just to get a real deep grasp on these things uh, or both, um, uh, that would be great. So keep that in prayer and give me your feedback and talk to Lynn or I if that's something that you're interested. We want to just kind of see how many people realistically would come out to this which would be basically once a month for each study. So whether that would be the second week of the month or last week of the month or something like that. But uh, it would be a Friday night, so, you know, when you punch out of work on that day, you know, it's the weekend. So, right, you just punch out and come back over here and punch back in to church and join us for uh, apologetics. And so just to give you a little bit of vision on the apologetics side, I was thinking what we can do is we can certainly go through... um, uh, apologetics and probably focus on uh, specifically on uh, the book by Van Til, Defense of the Faith, uh, which is a hard book, but I think it's worth going through and we'll go very slowly. And then as part of the fellowship there, what we can also do is kind of walk through uh, some of my open air preaching videos and just kind of uh, uh, sort of dialogue over that and and everybody can sort of uh, just kind of uh, ask questions and whatnot. If that's something that you're interested in, let me know because I'm eager to start that up. And so probably as soon as next month, Pastor Lynn, I think, right? Pastor Lynn's like, really? <laughs> Ready or not, here we come, right? No, but yeah, we've been praying about this. And so I think it's something that would be really good for our church. And uh, so good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're back in Thessalonians and we are back to progress through the theology of what we have been talking about in terms of the doctrine of the Antichrist. And today, uh, I want to focus on Paul's portrait, the picture that he gives here of the man of sin, specifically focusing on the activity now of the Antichrist, because that's really what this is all about. Because he says, he who's coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan. And in order to see that activity, Paul's going to really describe to us the, the, uh, the nature of it, the satanic nature of it, of course, the deceptive nature of his power and the victims that fall prey to the Antichrist. So the nature, the power, and the, uh, the victims, if you would, of the Antichrist. And the first thing is to notice here that the nature of the Antichrist is satanic. And when Paul says that Antichrist will come according to the activity of Satan, I can understand that in a multitude of ways. Uh, even as he goes on to spell out here in terms of the signs and wonders and that. But the fact that he is aligned with the evil one tells us that the activity of the Antichrist is really uh, sort of a, 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 a pseudo or a false counterfeit to the relationship that you have already with the Father and the Son, let's say, for example, because Antichrist is going to be energized by Satan, and he's going to seek to counterfeit that which Christ did, as he says there in John chapter 5, that only what he saw and only what he heard the Father doing, that is what he did. And so the Antichrist will do the opposite, right? He'll try to mirror what Christ did, but obviously to an antithetical, blasphemous degree. He will only say or he will only do what he sees and hears Satan telling him to do. Now, we're going to get into this as we look at uh, the book of Revelation today with a little bit more depth. But I perceive this activity, this this uh, 
activity of Satan through Antichrist, ultimately as an opposition to God. Look back at verse 4, because he says that one of the things that he does is he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And so there, uh, Antichrist is an opposer. He is an opposer to all other forms of spirituality. So one thing that he seeks above everything else is spiritual supremacy on earth. And in terms of how that relates to the church, we can see that opposition in a number of ways. Number one, his opposition to God, as we mentioned. Number two, his pursuit of sovereignty, which is ultimately expressed in the world system that you and I know as Babylon, and ultimately his persecution of the church. So how does Satan, or how does the Antichrist, following in the activity of Satan, oppose God? He opposes God, first of all, by taking the position of God or seeking to take the position of God. And we saw that. We saw that what Satan is seeking to do by going into the temple of God, the temple there, probably simply metaphorical of a posture that he desires to take, which is based on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and places like that. And ultimately it comes down to, as we saw, a battle between mountain supremacy. Even as God sits on Zion, the Antichrist will want to ascend up into the mount of God and declare himself to be God. If it's not, uh, it's not, um, coincidental, therefore, that Revelation chapter 16, verse 16, uh, uh, speaks of the ultimate conflict between God and the man of sin, the beast, the antichrist, Satan, the false prophet, as a gathering to the mountain of God, Harmageddon. And there, uh, Harmageddon is where, where he will be uh, destroyed. And certainly that is something that is true. But also, just in terms of his uh, desire for world supremacy, to set up an image in the world, even as he does in the book of Revelation. Throughout, you see that the, Im- the, the beast is given an image and he makes the image speak. We're going to look at that. But also don't forget that the ultimate activity of Antichrist is to persecute the church. That's really where uh, Antichrist is um, sort of uh, explained in the book of Revelation. That's really what his activity is all about. It is all about the desire to destroy the church. So, for example, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and following, the Antichrist is, is given authority. God even ordaining that the Antichrist would have the authority to persecute the church. But, of course... Because God ordains all things, as we saw last week, he is underneath the sovereignty of God. He cannot do anything other than what God allows him to do. And therefore, Satan, who made war in heaven, when he is no longer capable of making war in heaven, Revelation chapter 12 says he is cast down to the earth, and on the earth he attempts to destroy the temple of God, which is the people of God there in Revelation 13, verses 6 and Seven, And we are assured in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, that if anybody seeks to destroy the temple of God, which is the church at that point, he will be destroyed. All of this persecution, brothers and sisters, listen carefully, all of the spirit of persecution comes from the evil one. You understand that from the beginning, Satan has been enraged. 
that he has suffered a loss. He first lost at the Garden of Eden when he was judged and God judged him and said that he would be cursed and that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and between him. And ever since then, there has been this universal conflict between the seed of Satan, which is really represented by the unbelieving world system, and the seed of the woman, which is represented by Jesus Christ and everyone who is connected with Jesus Christ. And so what is the Old Testament and the New Testament really all about? It is tracing the conflict. It is following the conflict between the two seeds that are there in embryonic form in Genesis. And that's what it's all about. But this Antichrist and this activity of Satan comes in the form of signs and wonders. Look at what it says. He says he's coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power, that's one thing, and signs and false wonders. Now that automatically tells us that everything that he will do, to whatever degree he actually manifests signs and wonders, they will be, of course, false. Now, to see this maybe a little bit more in depth, look at Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, because there uh, there is the description of the beast and the false prophet and the signs and wonders that are performed so that we have, in a sense, the antitype of this, or the fulfillment, rather, of what Paul is talking about in terms of the work of the Antichrist. Look at uh, Revelation thirteen eleven. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, don't get confused in terms of the coming up out of the earth, the two horns like a lamb. That language all goes back to Daniel. And so, to make it really simple so that you don't get lost, that language of coming up out of the earth and having horns, instead of you in your mind painting a picture of, you know, some sort of creature crawling out of the earth or something like that and having horns and all of that, that language is apocalyptic imagery to simply tell us that this person is going to have, is going to be a world ruler. That's the language that is used of Daniel of world rulers. And so, for example, you know, the emperors of Rome are conveyed in the same language that they have horns and they come up out of the earth. And, and that's just language of apocalyptic visions that Daniel received to show how that these people would, were, would be given strength to rule the world, in a sense, and that these world rulers would be destroyed by God. And so that's the language that's being utilized here. John is borrowing from Daniel to express that what Daniel saw way back there in the, you know, whatever, 8th century B.C. or 7th century B.C., right, that all of those world powers were but a foreshadow. They were a foretaste of the ultimate world system that is to come, and that comes through the beast and the false prophet. But notice, this other beast that came up out of the earth, not the Antichrist, he's someone else. Later in Scripture, he is clearly identified as the false prophet. And so you have two beasts in Revelation up to this point. You have the main beast, which is the Antichrist, and then you have another beast, and even as it says here, another beast, which is the false prophet. Now he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Wow. And the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. We'll come back to that. He performs great signs. Oh, there we go. So these, I'm saying, these these have to correlate 
What Paul is talking about in Thessalonians is now correlating here in Revelation with these signs. And these great signs, it says, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Now, there's a debate, and I don't know the answer to this really, but there's a debate in, in, in terms of what is being alluded to here is the same phenomenon that you see in, for example, in Kings when Elijah makes fire come down out of heaven. And so what some people are saying is that in apocalyptic parlance, what John is basically saying is that this false prophet will be like a pseudo-Elijah. He will perform signs and wonders. Now, will there literally be fire coming down out of heaven? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Let's say Yes. Let's say yes, we know, based on what Paul says, that these are false signs. They're not false because they don't happen. They're false because they're not rooted in the true and living God. Even as the magicians of Pharaoh were able to actually perform demonic signs. It wasn't that they didn't, it wasn't a sleight of hand trick. They were actually doing signs and wonders, but though, of course, we understand that they were rooted in demonic powers, demonic uh, principles, and therefore, they were not true signs. Consequently, the fact that signs attends the false prophet and the beast is also a counterfeit apostolic ministry. Even as the ministry of the apostles was confirmed by signs and wonders, so too, Antichrist and false prophet will seek to confirm their authority through the authenticating signs that they will give to the world. Amazing, isn't it? And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, all the way from the very beginning, you notice the cryptic language here that this other beast, this false prophet that arises, he is described in a lamb-like character, but he is a beast and he is a dragon, right? He speaks as a dragon. So what's he saying there? That's basically equivalent of what Jesus said in terms of wolves and sheep's clothing. And so he is, he comes, so this kind of gives us a little insight into the manner of the false prophet, that he will not come necessarily in dictatorial fashion to try to smash everybody down and try to crush everybody and oppress everybody. No, 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 no. From the appearance of what's going on here, he'll probably come as a gentle lamb, as a persuasive lamb, harmless, apparently. And the world will buy into the harmless nature of that lamb. Now, also, um, I said we talk about the fatal wound. Uh, I don't know exactly what that fatal wound will be, but in some form or fashion, the beast will seek to counterfeit the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Makes perfect sense. Because he is the counterfeit one, and everything he seeks to do is to try to do the antithesis of what Jesus did, and so in some way he will either stage his uh, death and apparently come back to life. And this is uh, also, by the way, this is one of the reasons why many preterist uh, theologians and preterist commentators, and when I say preterist, the word preterism, just so that I don't leave anybody behind, the word preterism speaks of a view of eschatology that sees that everything has pretty much been fulfilled. 
and that in 70 AD, when the destruction of the temple took place, that that was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout church history, strict preterism has been condemned as heresy because they don't believe in a future visible bodily return of Jesus Christ. That's heresy. But there are orthodox brethren, to give you one famous example, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was a partial preterist. He believes that much of what you see in, for example, Matthew 24 has already been fulfilled uh, and that uh, the destruction of the temple was very significant to the fulfillment of Matthew 24. I think there's a mixture of the two. I think that's more of a balanced position. Uh, I think that's uh, what most commentators would suggest is there it's difficult to uh, divorce the historical from the future aspects of all of this apocalyptic language and all these prophecies. And so some would, I, I mention that because many preterist interpreters have interpreted the fatal wound there as being fulfilled in Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero, of course, if you know the story of Nero, he died and shortly after his death, There was a myth, or they call it the legend of Nero, which was a popular myth going around the Roman Empire that Nero had come back to life. And so they would say that's what John was preparing the saints for. He was preparing for the emperor Nero to, to, you know, for this legend that would arise and deceive uh, people in the empire and cause them to engage in imperial worship and all of that. I don't see that. If, if, if anything, that may be sort of a partial fulfillment uh, or th- that may be just like a one antichrist figure in many. I mean, I think Hitler was an antichrist figure. But is he the fulfillment of anything in Scripture directly? No, I don't think so. But I think he fits the mold of what Antichrist is like. So because Antichrist follows in the league of all sorts of uh, world rulers that rise to power and seek world dominance. And so you have the same with Antiochus Epiphanes. You have the same with Titus, uh, the, the, the Roman emperor, with Nero, with people like Hitler. And it's easy to see how people get swept away in that and how people can be deceived. But we'll, co- we'll come back to that. But at any rate, the false signs and wonders are somehow connected to some apparent false resurrection. Some pseudo coming back to life is a primary means of that resurrection. Also, uh, ironically, when it says that Antichrist makes fire come down out of heaven, if you look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, for example, it's actually fire from heaven that actually destroys the Antichrist and destroys the false prophet. Of course, because there God will prove that it is his power that will ultimately conquer the deceiver. These or the, the, this false resurrection claim, however, will be the occasion of false signs and wonders consisting of everything from fire from heaven, speaking image, those who are on the earth deceived into making an image of the beast so as to worship him. It's amazing. You and I live in remarkable times. There is something to be said, and I want to be careful here because I think what happens is that, you know, as we as we see the folly of certain dispensational principles, I would say, we tend to swing to the extreme opposite, as if to say that everything that, let's say, premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensationalists would, you know, sort of argue for. I remember one being in a dispensational church, and the pastor said when he got to the, the subject of the mark of the beast, he didn't say it might be. He said, it will be a computer chip in your hand or in your forehead. It's, it, matter, it was like dogmatic. It was like gospel truth. 
Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that our, our, our generation stands in a very unique uh, time in history, like no other time ever. And uh, the concept of a global enterprise, a global economically linked system is not difficult to imagine now. Uh, matter of fact, I talked to you about this before, but in China, Pastor Lin just came back from China. In China, he can testify to this. <laughs> but in China, their surveillance system is capable of governing the lives of pretty much every single citizen in China. Millions and millions of people. And just recently in the news, um, they've discovered that China has enforced this credit score system on its population where depending on how you behave, you get a certain score. And that score as a citizen of China determines whether or not you can buy a house, whether or not you can get on a plane or a train, plane, trains, and automobiles. I mean, whether or not you can travel, whether or not you can eat in certain places or visit certain people or go to certain places, even in your own town. And in order for your credit score to go up, you actually have to engage in certain acts, certain charity-type acts where you are publicly demonstrating that you support the government, that you support communism, that you support what's going on. And as you do that, there are literally like, like stations in neighborhoods where you go report your good deeds and show evidence of it and your score goes up. And suddenly you begin to be able to travel again. That's going on right now on planet Earth. Um, the same type of system is being uh, uh, inaugurated in Ven- Venezuela. They're starting to do the same type of thing. Develop a credit score. Everybody's going to start getting a certain grade. And depending on where you're at, that will either limit your ability to buy and sell. Sound familiar? To eat. I mean, is that where it's going? Maybe. I don't know. So I even put in my notes here so that I have proof. <laughs> to whatever degree technology will play a role in all these end time events is anyone's guess. And yet what is certain is that the purpose of this end-time activity is to bring people under satanic deception and antichrist destruction. That's what it's all about. The antichrist knows that he is doomed. And he wants to bring as many people into destruction with him. There is no other goal. As to this image, because it says here in Revelation 13 that... He encourages people to make an image and the false prophet, part of the signs and wonders is that he makes the image speak. That language also comes from Daniel. You remember Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar made an image, remember? And he forced everyone in Babylon to worship that image or die. And so what happens is that in biblical theology, Daniel's friends actually become as a type of tribulation martyrs who reveal that, that, to, that God keeps His people in the midst of an antichrist fire and persecution. He keeps them to the end. And as a matter of fact, He's there with them and He is among them. Now, tell you what, if you're in that type of persecution, if you're in any persecution whatsoever and you look at what's going on in Daniel, but particularly, let's fast forward a bit. Let's say we are in the throes a full-blown, blatant antichrist oppression and that society has erected some sort of universal image to which you must pay homage or die. What comfort would that be to you and I to look back at Daniel, where this whole imagery in Revelation comes from, and know God is in the fire with us. 
And, and, and so what's the encouragement? Well, the encouragement is like, uh, is like the, the friends of, of Daniel. Do not love your life unto death. What did they tell the king? Oh, king, we, we won't worship the image. Matter of fact, our God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, matter of fact, we still won't worship the image. And so that's like, uh, that's like the ancient version of Acts 5. We will obey God rather than man. Do to us as it seems right to you. We don't care. And see, that's somebody who has fully bought into the kingdom of God. That's somebody that understands that the fire of persecution around you cannot actually harm you. So what is the, what is the picture that is given in the book of Daniel in the end of the story? By the end of the story, what is it said? Not a hair on their body was burned. Their clothes didn't even smell like fire. God so fully, invincibly protected them. They had no evidence of being burned by the fire. That's how it's going to be in heaven. The martyrs in heaven that John sees... Even if you look at Revelation chapter 20, those martyrs that will be there at the throne of God, the souls of the, the righteous made perfect, those, they will have no evidence in the kingdom of God of being beheaded, of being martyred for the gospel. Really remarkable, isn't it? I believe it's all moving towards that. If you were in the first century, you would read the book of Revelation and you would also be reminded not only of Daniel, but you would also be reminded in your own context that you lived in Rome. And in Rome, Caesar demanded worship. And in Rome, there was an imperial cult where you must sacrifice and make sacrifice or make uh, give an incense sacrifice to an altar of Caesar and say, Hail Caesar, that he is Lord paying universal homage to Caesar. I say all of those are mere shadows and pictures of the final coming full-blown antichrist deception that will transpire right here on planet earth. That's my position. And so for whatever amillennial stuff you can accuse me of, I'm still that much of a futurist, okay? It's not all been fulfilled. There is still plenty to come. Now, Understanding that all these false signs and wonders, whatever he will do, staging a resurrection, making fire come down of heaven, making an image that people will worship, that he will make to speak. I mean, that's just not hard to do right now in our society. I mean, the faster, I mean, we're going light speed down the corridors of technology and it's going to become increasingly uh, available for us to just throw on a pair of glasses and be able to be face-to-face with anybody anywhere around the world. Uh, you know how they're going to get you? Uh, Chris Matthews can testify to this because we were talking about this. It's like it starts with totally simple, uh, totally non-moral things. Don't you want to be, you know, right behind home plate at the ball game? Just throw on these pair of glasses and you'll feel like you're standing right there courtside with LeBron James. Who doesn't want that form of technology? And so all of a sudden, you know, you've got a bunch of zombies walking around with things on their head. I'm not calling, if you use that, hey, listen, I haven't tried the goggles, but, <laughs> but if you have no judgment, I'm making a point that it, through technology, it is becoming increasingly, increasingly uh, 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 easy and uh, simple for this type of global networking to be going on simultaneously everywhere. And um, we can see how that can happen. 
Now, the next thing is this, not just the signs and wonders, but also ultimately the deception because it says another hallmark of Antichrist activity is what Paul calls all the deception of wickedness, of wickedness. This shows us that in the setting out of his signs and wonders, worship of Antichrist will be achieved through the illusion that a person is really serving themselves in serving the beast. That only makes perfect sense, of course, if we think about the beast and his close association with the state, and more importantly, the world system of Babylon, if buying and selling will be prohibited or even impossible without identifying with the world system of the end, it's not hard to imagine how people even viewing that worshiping the the beast is actually a moral obligation. Yeah, of course. Now, who's to say, let me paint a very plausible picture for you. Who is to say that the Antichrist is going to ascend to power in a world that is as it is today? How do we know the conditions of what the world will be like when, in fact, he takes his ascent to power? How do we know he doesn't come to a world that's in utter chaos to try to resolve the world's problems? And so that a world in total turmoil and chaos where people are struggling to literally eat struggling to get by, all of that. I mean, after all, if you look at the economy on a global scale, I mean, it doesn't take an a economic expert to tell us we're, we're occupying and we're, we're operating on borrowed time. I mean, we got debt everywhere. The national debt is through the roof. I mean, when people start collecting checks, who knows what can happen? Who knows what can happen? We just simply don't know. But we know this that there's coming a time when buying and selling will be critical and it will not be able to, you won't be able to do it without some sort of adherence to this end time system. It's not unimaginable, folks. Think about the way that Satan operates. He always operates that way. He always operates along the path of offering you what is good and right and moral and wise. I mean, think about Jesus' conflict with the serpent. The son of God. Throw yourself down from here. The scripture says he'll send angels to bear you up, right? If you are the son of man, command these stones. You're hungry. Command these stones to become bread. It's harmless. Just eat some bread and alleviate your hunger, right? God hasn't really said that. God knows that the day that you eat of it, you'll be like God. You see, that's all that's at stake here. He doesn't want you to know certain things and uh, things that you're entitled to know. See how he comes, always comes, offering hell on a silver platter, making you think that what you're buying, there's nothing wrong with this. This is completely harmless. It's perfectly normal for the internet to be all throughout my house and video cameras to be on my front door and over my baby's crib and watching me in my laptop and my phone 24-7 and my car now is hooked up to my phone and hooked up to my house and before I even get home, my front door already knows I'm coming and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Perfectly normal for all that. You know, I walked into uh, uh, Costco the other day. They have a whole station now in uh, Costco, or not not Costco, uh, uh, Home Depot. They have a whole station there in Home Depot, smart house. You seen this? So it's an entire kiosk, uh, forget a kiosk, it's a whole department now of how you can trick out your house. How? Well, by putting microphones and video cameras and internet. Man, you can put the internet on your thermostat. And they're now discovering that all these little gadgets that we're putting all over their houses, guess what they have inside of them? You heard of this Nest? 
uh, thermostat thing. Now they've discovered that Nest has a hidden microphone in it, so it's just listening to you nonstop. Why? Uh, maybe perhaps <laughs> it's so that one day this diabolical world that we live in will be able to instantaneously report what you're saying, what you're doing. I mean, this is what we're coming to. We're also, brothers and sisters, we're also coming to this stage now where this is, this is real news. This is not Pastor Emilio's conspiratorial, well, a little bit, but it's still fun. It's still fun. Now they're getting now to where they're able to fake your video to where now they can take your image, put it on anything or anybody they'd like, and make you do whatever they want you to do. And the video is so real, it is imperceptible to the naked eye. It even takes sophisticated technology to determine that you didn't rob that bank, that you didn't kill that person, that that wasn't you committing that crime. It it takes sophisticated technology to decode that. This is where we're at, where literally things can now be completely staged, an entire pseudo form of you can be completely manufactured and can be presented as evidence of you doing something you did not do. Now, fast forward 50 years. Can you even imagine? I think having Eden for me was the most complicated thing that ever happened in my life because it was the greatest joy ever had, probably since salvation. And I can't think of anything more I delight in in my life. And yet, when I'm confronted with reality, a deep sorrow comes upon me. And it's a bittersweet. It's knowing that I have to raise a daughter in this world. And if things I'm seeing, the dots I'm connecting now, I can't imagine when she's my age, what she's... And it makes me really... You know, just think, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, because the whole world is moved around by the prince of the power of the air. And that's only going to get worse and worse and worse. Recently, the world saw another example of how this can all come together and how people could easily get swept along of this kind of deception on a mass scale. When ISIS arose, you know, people from all over the world were literally flocking to the Middle East to Iraq and Syria, pledging their allegiance to some would-be caliphate in Syria where they could thrive spiritually and economically, by the way. In fact, in small Middle Eastern towns in Iraq and in Syria, villagers could not buy or sell food. They could not operate in the open market without first pledging their allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of the ISIS caliphate. Think about that. So this is on a microcosm where people are being forced to swear allegiance to one leader without which you can't go to the village person down the street and purchase something to eat. I mean, you think about this, but if people do this now, what will, what will it look like under the activity of Satan, under the deception of Antichrist? Can you even fathom? Can you even imagine we live in a world, after all, brothers and sisters, where forget about a raving lunatic in the desert. We're talking about a dictator in Germany that almost took over the world without the use of modern technology like we have now. Can you imagine what people can do now, put in the hands of the right person? Man is easily deceived, let alone the unrestrained deception of Satan 
upon the world. We've yet to see that, by the way. We're, we're not seeing that now. What we see now is an incredible level of common grace. Incredible level of common grace. Where your neighbors are still here to do good to you. Can you imagine when the restraint is removed out of the way? Antichrist is revealed and all hell literally breaks loose. I don't think we can fathom that. But Scripture is telling us something critical here. That all of this is wickedness. You see? So that leads me to believe that whatever is coming is going to be couched in goodness. It's going to be couched in righteousness. It's going to be couched in miracles when it's actually going to be rooted in satanic wickedness. When Babylon falls, Revelation chapter 14, it's interesting that the angel decries Babylon has fallen. And the thing that he, that he uh, characterizes it with is its immorality. Its immorality. A world under Antichrist will also therefore unleash unparalleled wickedness and immorality in the world. You remember what Jesus said? As the days of Noah were. And then he says in Luke 17, as the days of Sodom were. So will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. What was, it, what was it like in the days of Noah? Violence without measure. It says the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. What was it like before the brimstone and fire came down on Sodom and Gomorrah? Immorality so rampant that it would boggle your mind. Matter of fact, Sodom and Gomorrah, I think we'll remember the big sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Of homosexuality, immorality, they wanted to rape a lot and his daughters and the angels that were there, right? Remember? But if you're not careful to notice what it says in Genesis 19.4, this is the part that hit me upside the head. The would-be mob, apparently homosexual mob of men waiting outside of the doors of Lot's house to rape two apparently beautiful-looking male angels. At least that's the appearance that they took. It says this, and this is what should strike us. It says that men, young and old, from every quarter of the city. You know how hard it is today in today's cultural climate to be a Christian? No, no, no. Not one of those fake Christians. Not one of those fake, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic Christians, the man upstairs theology. I'm talking about the real bona fide Jesus Christ man. You try that in today's popular culture, and you'll find out that from every quarter of society, you are not accepted. I love sports, and my heart was broken when I saw that there these sports illustrated awards or something all of these powerful athletes stood and applauded bruce jenner for his winning an award for courage (laughs) we gave that man an award for being the most courageous person in the world and grown men, grown masculine, masculine, muscular men sat there lauding over that. Can you imagine if you stood up in the midst of that crowd and said, you know, the Bible says cross-dressing is a sin. 
You know, the Bible says homosexuality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you will go to hell. You'll see what happens to you. You'll see in a moment, in an instant, that from every quarter, you'll be condemned. You will become the very essence of evil itself. Where has our postmodern world gone? It has gone crazy. I see it every week on college campus. Preaching on abortion, a young man runs to the microphone, and what does he yell? Kill the babies. In public, to rousing applause. Kill the babies. Yay! This is the world that we live in. Can you imagine a world where Antichrist is governing? Yeah, it's exactly that. In terms of the immorality of Babylon, the system of the man of lawlessness, you know, I was reminded of just how bad it is even in our world today. Just recently, Trish and I got a magazine in the mail by the February edition, 2019 February edition of Parent Magazine. I don't ask for this thing. I don't know why this thing keeps coming to my house. It's just there every time. There it is. I don't even want the thing. Well, on the front cover of the magazine, this uh, edition's model parents were two homosexual men raising their little boys, their little adopted boys, I think ages three and five. That is the model of parenting to the world now. I think, am I living on planet Earth? Is this the twilight zone? Did I die and wake up in the twilight zone? Like, what is going on? People just stand for this? It's embarrassing where our society has come. But why is it surprising? Jesus told us, like the days of Sodom were, like it was in Noah's time. Are we still just thinking everything's just going to be hunky-dory? It's going to be perfectly all right. No, 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 no. It's not. It's getting worse and worse and worse. You know, one thing that really upsets me, because for years I've considered conservative politicians and conservatism to be something of a litmus test, something of a barometer, a a firewall almost around Christian values, right? Well, today, even the the, the conservative political conservative movement has adopted a new, a new uh, a motto, and this is how it goes. We are fiscally conservative, but we are socially liberal. What have you just said right there? What you just said is that you know nothing from history. What you just said is that you don't understand that morality goes first, not economics. You understand how wealthy Rome was? You know how powerful Rome, the Roman Empire was? You know how much wealth and power they had? You know they had the most invincible military on planet Earth? And you know why they fell? Because nine out of ten emperors were homosexual. It's because the, the, the empire became, became so lecherous and so licentious that they began to actually er, uh, uh, construct and plaster all over the empire public pornography. Public. And God judged that empire. And in 410, we know the history of it. It was destroyed, invaded by clans that were mocked and ridiculed and groups and nomads that think, these barbarians, they will, they will be smashed on the walls of Rome if they try to invade. Oh, and they invaded. Oh, and they overthrew Rome and destroyed it. Rome crumbled within. Why? 
wasn't because they were not fiscally conservative. It's because they were not morally conservative. The Bible says sin is a reproach on any people. That is a nomic truth, universal. It is a proverb that applies everywhere at all times. It never loses its potency, ever. This brings us to this. All of this is personal because there are real victims of the Antichrist. Look at the text. It says he comes with deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not, re- did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And oh, I was so grateful that Paul put it in exactly that way. Is that the way you would have put it? I don't know if that's the way I would have put it, but that's the way Paul put it. They did not receive critical importance here and the critical term being love. They did not receive the love of the truth. What is Paul saying there? What Paul's saying there is that it's not just enough to know the truth. It's not just enough to assent to the truth. It's not just enough to be raised around the truth. It's not just enough to say that you are aware of the truth. It's not even enough to, uh, to side with the truth or to propagate the truth. Many preachers are going to hell. Many scholars that sit behind a a desk in a cubicle right now in seminaries throughout this nation are on their way to hell because the truth has simply become an academic gamesmanship. That's it. It's just a, you know, it's just a career like anything else. They don't love it. It doesn't have their hearts they are not affectionately bound to the truth. They know it, but affectionately in the deepest affection, in the heart of hearts, as David says, in the inward parts where no one sees, they don't love it. They're not committed to it. It's all external. My understanding is that when the communists really came down to the churches of Russia, way back when, right around World War I, World War II, it was the state-sponsored churches who turned in pastors and preachers and those who really love the truth. That's what separates us from sort of a superficial type of Christianity. When you love the truth, you're committed to the truth. When you love the truth, you will die for the truth. That's exactly what needs to happen. We need to love the truth so much that we will follow it even if it costs us our lives. These people are unbelievers. These people will be deceived by any Christ. They will not, not only will they not receive the love of the truth, they will receive the mark of the beast. Uh, let me read to you. It says in Revelation 13, the whole world will marvel after the beast. Instead of fearing God, instead of loving God, instead of loving Jesus Christ, this God-hating world will actually marvel after Satan and marvel after the beast. Revelation 13.3, I saw one of his heads as, it, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. There's that false resurrection it's talking about. And the whole world was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon. Because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to make war with him? In other words, they come to a place where they think the beast is unstoppable. The beast is inconquerable. The beast is invincible. So who could stand against the beast? Sounds like the Tower of Babel, remember? 
if they are allowed to do this, nothing that they do will be impossible. And so that's why I'm convinced Antichrist is after global supremacy, spiritual supremacy, economic supremacy over the world so that no one dares to challenge him. This is the way dictators have always operated. It's always like this. So much here. To draw it to a close, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. To see really what is at hand here is not an invincible beast complete opposite who can make war with the beast what are you talking about who can make war with god who can stand against him when he comes if you don't get the gospel if you don't see the gospel the god of this age has blinded your eyes second corinthians 4 4 but in revelation actually we're given the truth of exactly what happens just as they think that they are safe what does paul say first thessalonians chapter 5 Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on. Just as they think that they're just going to drink it up and they're going to drink of the cup of wickedness and immorality with impunity. I think that's the best description I've ever heard. Well, I wrote it. That's not why. But I think that's that's the best description I could have told you because I think that's the kind of world we're living in right now. People think they can engage in sin, immorality with impunity. Zero consequences. Romans chapter 3. No fear of God before their eyes. And just when they think they can live it up, in fact, they will drink of the cup of God's terrible wrath and learn the proverb that will smite them. God is not mocked. Revelation 14.9 says, Another angel, a third one followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. You see that there? The mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Christ Jesus. It's all about allegiance. And even now, if we take our eschatology serious, We believe that even now the principles of this antichrist system, this antichrist influence, this antichrist power is at work even now. How? Ultimately, through unbelief. If you don't receive the love of the truth, you receive the love of the beast. You receive the love of his name. You receive his name upon yourself. And in doing that, you identify with him and your fate is sealed to his. That's why... The answer to all of this is the gospel. Matter of fact, in Revelation, somewhere, it talks about the angel that goes throughout the world and he preaches the everlasting kingdom. I saw another angel flying in the mid heaven, having the, the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every tri- every nation and tribe and tongue and language. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. 
Because the hour of His judgment has come, worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Two cities, two kingdoms, two citizenships, two identities. There's only two kinds of people in the world. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're in Christ. You're safe. You're sealed. You're redeemed. Your hope is secure, safe. If you're outside of Christ, you are in Adam. You identify with the anti-Lord. You are with the beast. You are with his system. And you are with this present world who is under his influence. The, 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 The contrast could not be any greater. Let me pray for us. Father, we understand and we know that we are living in a time both of great calamity and great uh, distress. We know that on the authority of Your Word, all these types of things are coming. And yet, we understand that these things have been written for our perseverance, even as John says there in Revelation. It's for the perseverance of the saints. It's for our comfort and our joy. It's so that we can have security and safety in Christ. And yet, Lord... We're reminded where that safety is found, it is not found in our trying to find the way out of it. It is not found in us trying to secure ourselves, but whatever earthly means we think we can do it, either financially or by force, with our own weapons, with our own political views, with our own parties, that's not how we're secure. That's not what makes us safe. But we are safe in the invincible life of Jesus Christ. We live because He lives. We will reign because He reigns. And so, Lord, would You do what what we need You to do to help us to see, to, to assess, to examine in our own hearts, is our confidence in anything other than the total righteousness of Jesus Christ? Is our confidence built on anything other than the rock? Built on anything other than the the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ? Because we have no righteousness of our own. We cannot stand on our own two feet. And so we need for Him to confirm us in righteousness. And we're thankful, Lord. We're thankful for Your Son coming as the light of the world in a very, very dark place. We thank You that in His light, We see light, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.